This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Congress and President Trump have been working on a new stimulus package, but even though they are at work, they're also at odds over what to put in it and what to leave out. So what is really needed to pick up this economy for a post-vaccine comeback? And is there another stimulus check in your future? CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger is with us now. Jill, let's start with people. Another stimulus check for everyone? Is that probably coming? And if so, how much of a difference might 600 bucks make? Well, uh, I don't know if it's coming. Um, I think that there is some there's some consternation about these checks. And here's why. We had the government send out twelve hundred dollar checks for folks who made less than seventy five thousand, one hundred fifty thousand as a married couple, an extra five hundred bucks if you had a, a child. And, you know, a lot of those people didn't actually need those checks. And I know that sounds weird, but a lot of people who made more than, say, $75,000 a year total, um, at, you know, in, in household income, were still employed. And a strange thing happened when all those checks went out. And that is that disposable income shot up in April. So if you think about it this way, we came into the year with uh, an, a certain amount of average disposable income. Let's call it about mm, forty-five grand. That number went to 52000 in April. And that means that a lot of people who got those stimulus checks essentially kind of took the money and they saved it or they paid off debt. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't pay off debt, but that's a lot different than I need that money to actually survive in the economy. So economists are much more focused on enhanced unemployment benefits as a means to, number one, help individuals. Number two, stimulate economic growth. Because while it's really great to, again, pay down debt or save money, that's not stimulating the economy. So I think the the first path forward, among economists at least, is to beef up the unemployment insurance program, whether that is for individuals who are unemployed for a long time, whether that's for gig workers, but some real package that takes us through probably right till maybe until the summer, you know, at least through April, but hopefully through June, because we just don't know how long it's going to take to get everyone vaccinated. 
Okay, so here is kind of a weird situation. So we have the stimulus checks, which some people really needed, but some people, as you pointed out, did not. Unemployment benefits, I take it if you were getting those, you really needed them. And yet, and this goes to kind of like planning and putting away something for next year, even though it may be hard to put away. The stimulus checks are not taxable. The unemployment benefits are. I know. I, th- there's something really kind of cruel about that. Uh, well, I mean, look, the the stimulus checks, when we think about stimulus check, what is like, let's think about those two words. We want to stimulate the economy and we do so through a check. So the question is, maybe we could have a more effective stimulus program if it were directed towards those who are most at risk and who's most at risk. Well, according to the Federal Reserve and a lot of the studies that have been done, it's essentially those folks who are making $40,000 a year or less. So maybe if we were to have some sort of stimulus check, and again, you know, $600 may not seem like a lot, but if you make $40,000 a year, $32,000 a year, getting $600 that's not taxable to you, that might be pretty good. So if you are going to do a stimulus program, I think it has to be more directed towards the lower end of the income earners in the United States. Yeah, they're more likely to put it back into the economy and spend it or at base. And this brings us to another part of looking at the stimulus, not get kicked out of their homes, because we are also dealing with the eviction protection, which is set to expire at the end of the year. There's talk about extending that through the end of January. But this is a crucial thing for a lot of people. It sure is. And when you think about that, you know, it's winter in many of the states across the United States and it's cold. And do you really want to go out and start looking for a new place to live in that environment? This is a problem. And I don't think that a stopgap measure will do it. Again, we're in this very strange period in this country where there is a light at the end of the tunnel. But it's faint right now. I mean, we know that there is going to be an end to this awful pandemic. But between where we are right now with virus surging, with benefits and stimulus and protections expiring, and the, the let's say, springtime inoculation of hundreds, uh, 250 or 300 million Americans, if you get to that spot, that, that in-between period, a lot of bad things can happen. So I think the eviction moratorium is impro- important. But hand in hand with that, You've got to have forbearance for mortgages as well, because you I'm not talking about the huge landlords who are out there, but you have mom and pop landlords who are also seeing the expiration of a little breathing room from their mortgages. And so if they have to make the payment in the mortgage, but they're not collecting rent, that creates another set of problems. So those two policies really have to go hand in hand. Yeah, and we also have some groups that may be in trouble. We have hotel groups are saying if they don't at least get a life preserver on debt forbearance to get through the winter, about 71% of their members will be out of business. And we talk about this later in the show with Ann Hornaday of the Washington Post. You have the theaters who are saying, look, it's very nice to say that, oh, everybody will come back to the theaters you know, once we have the vaccines this summer. But the problem is our debt load is so crushing, we may never be able to reopen. I think that the um, arts institutions are particularly worrying in a lot of ways because they sort of feel like they're falling through the cracks. Now, remember, a lot of nonprofits like theaters uh, were able to apply for PPP loans, and that was survival for, for many of them. So to me, that may be the next tranche of what the, the, the bailing out of industry has to look like, and that is, you know, maybe we need to differentiate. For example, if you've got a huge hotel chain 
right? Um, and I'm going to just use a name. I don't, you know, whatever, Hyatt, Marriott, whatever. These are companies that can tap the public markets. These are companies that can go out and say to investors, look beyond the next six months. We need money. We're floating a bond. We're doing this. We're doing that. So they can access markets. But if you look at an arts institution, especially a nonprofit, where can they turn? You know, there's only so many deep pockets that can help them around charitable giving. They are going to need really significant assistance. And the people, you know, getting back to this, it's like these are the things go hand in hand. You don't want the theater company to go broke. And of course, you don't want all the people who work at the theater company to have no safety net. So I think there has to be some sort of a uh, small business and nonprofit business targeted program, again, hand in hand with that individual safety net. Those two pieces are really important. And of course, the third and maybe one more area that is very concerning to economists are municipalities. So if you think about it, a place like New York or Washington or the Bay Area or Boston, they're spending a ton of money. Well, many of these cities and states have to operate with balanced budgets. So unlike the federal government, they can't just keep borrowing. We need to see the federal government push dollars towards these municipalities or else the municipalities themselves are going to be the next the next knock on effect of the pandemic. They are going to be forced to lay off their workers. And wouldn't that be just horrendous to imagine a time where you say, Oh, well, you know what? These big cities, they can't pay all these teachers. They're going to have to lay off some teachers and they're going to be firefighters. There's going to be police folks. I mean, this is a terrible thing to contemplate, which is why we need the federal government to act, to fill that void. Yeah. And even something that kind of gets overlooked, like, you know, gym franchises, they're they're saying, hey, uh, look, some, some of these things are a matter of people's choice. I don't want to go out right now and things like that. But the government has forced us in many states to shut down. And therefore, you've got a responsibility to help us stay in business. It's an interesting well, moral argument. It is, but I think it's, there is some danger here also that you cannot save everyone. And I know that sounds terrible, but we have to go for where we think there will be the greatest impact. We don't have unlimited dollars. So now we have to start with who's most at risk, who can we save, what program can be initiated or continued in a seamless fashion. And you're not going to save everyone. We've already lost thousands of businesses. On the other hand, do you really want to create a plan to save a business like a, a department store chain that's been poorly run for the last 25 years? Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see if Congress, with all the political ramifications of the compromises needed to make this work, can sort all of this out. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger is with us. Of course, you can follow her at jillonmoney.com, and she's got lots of videos and podcasts and blogs and all kinds of things there. Jill, thank you so much. Great to be with you. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. An incoming administration means, of course, a new cabinet. It's not complete yet, but it's interesting how the odds have changed and who's going to be in it and who's not. CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons has been around presidential politics quite a bit over the years. And Jamal, I want to take some time to size up the Biden cabinet as it stands so far, especially the winners and losers. Let me just start off with a general question. Any surprises? 
Well, the, today, Vice President Biden picked Lloyd Austin to be his uh, Secretary of Defense, which is not a name many people thought about uh, a few weeks ago. He is an African-American former uh, general um, head of CENTCOM, uh, Central Command. Uh, that's not somebody that people would have thought of. And for Democrats, it's presenting a little bit of a, um, of a quandary because when Jim Mattis was chosen, uh, the Democrats, the Senate, had to pass a rule that suspended the seven-year uh, cooling-off period that most generals have to face. That's, that's the tradition. It's legal. Um, I used to work for General Wesley Clark. At one point, he was up for being uh, defense secretary, and that was something we talked about. You have to be out of the military for seven years before you can be considered a civilian leader. They made the exception for Mattis. They're going to have to make the exception again for Lloyd Austin. Some people are um, uh, hesitant to do that again, but it might be a pretty hard hurdle for uh, Democrats not to support um, an African-American general who could be the first black secretary of defense. Yeah, and it set up an interesting thing in the Senate because with the suspicion of having a military person in charge of the military instead of a civilian person, and on the other side, some people who just, you know, don't want necessarily Biden to get his first pick. You have this strange thing where right now it looks like Elizabeth Warren and Tom Cotton may be on one side against him and Chris Coons and Jim Inhofe on the other side for him. These are names that are almost never on the same side. That's right. That's right. And as someone said uh, yesterday, it's, it's kind of it's kind of fun to have uh, a policy debate right over issues uh, in the United States Senate. It's not just, you know, red team versus blue team. People are thinking about very big issues and how they suss, suss this out. And keep in mind, you know, Austin didn't just leave the military. He's, he's been out for four years. So he does have um, he does have some civilian experience. But this is yeah, this is a, this is a really big question. The, the challenge here, though, is that for, you know, historical uh, uh, sensibility, there are four big jobs in the in the cabinet, secretary of the state, uh, secretary of defense, attorney general and secretary of the treasury. Um, there's been an African-American Secretary of State, a few of them, Republican Colin Powell, Republican Condi Rice. Um, and now there's going to be uh, perhaps a black Secretary of Defense. There still has not been a black and there's been a black uh, attorney general, um, but there has not been a black Secretary of the Treasury. So, so this is sort of making the, the rounds of, of breaking down these old barriers, kind of the big four, what they call them, because they're the ones who are um, the most uh, quickly and the oldest cabinet jobs. And they're the ones in direct line of succession to the presidency if something were to happen to the to the government. So um, this is a big deal. It is a big deal. One of the surprises to some people is Michelle Flournoy, who was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy under Bill Clinton and Undersecretary of Defense for Policy under President Barack Obama, was considered a shoo-in by some people for Defense Secretary. Obviously, that didn't happen. It didn't happen. And uh, that's something people have, have been wrestling about. Um, that would have been a historical first, too, to have a woman be head, um, you know, head of the Defense Department. That's never occurred before. So, um, uh, you know, it didn't happen this time. It may not happen for Michelle Flannoy herself, but it, the odds are the way things are going in America, it will happen, um, you know, soon. So uh, and, and of course, uh, there is a, there is for the first time in history, a woman who's been named head of the Treasury Department. That's another barrier that's been broken in the government. So, you know, there are um, there are barriers falling down all over the place. And we are uh, we are watching history being made. There's another reason why having an African-American at the head of the Defense Department, I think, is a big deal. Um, the U.S. government, um, I think in fiscal year 2018 um, is the last number that I just saw just rustling around. Um, 
the US government spent about $550 billion in contracts. $358 billion of that 550 was out of the Defense Department. And of that $358 billion, $175 billion was in services. So these aren't like, you know, big, big uh, aircraft systems or missiles. Um, services like professional services, uh, just general procurement for the military. So uh, African-Americans have gotten about 4% of military contracts uh, going back small businesses and African-Americans. So if there is a possibility that you can torque that number up even just a little bit and get more African-Americans into the pipeline of contracting in the Defense Department, that could have a, a year where we're wrestling over systemic racism and the legacies of slavery, that could have a very big impact on African-American wealth generation to have more African-American contractors. I don't know if that's a priority area for the new Secretary of Defense designate, but if it is, it could have a very big impact. You know, we mentioned Elizabeth Warren earlier in talking about who's going to support uh, the Defense Secretary nominee, General Lloyd Austin. Uh, there were a lot of people who speculated that she was going to get Treasury. We know she wanted it. The speculation never made a lot of sense to me because Massachusetts has a GOP governor who could, if he wanted to, replace Warren with a Republican senator. Uh, still, Janet Yellen is not exactly what progressives had in mind. Um, well, yes and no. I mean, you know, in some, she's not as far uh, left or as interested in breaking things up as Elizabeth Warren is. But she's also not corporate. So there was a big push against having somebody who immediately came from the, you know, Wall Street or, you know, one of the big businesses like Alcoa. We had a Secretary of Treasury from Alcoa. We had one from, you know, one of the investment banks. Um, so not having, you know, uh, somebody from Goldman Sachs, we didn't get one of those guys. So having somebody who's an economist, who came out of the Fed, who's been an academic, that was a little bit of a tip of the hat by Biden to the progressives, although he didn't pick somebody who was uh, as much of a uh, kind of a big buster upper like Elizabeth Warren or, or Bernie Sanders, uh, the agenda they had. Right. And But one of the things that progressives have to face is that if the Democrats, if at best, win both seats in Georgia, and that's not a certainty by any means, he's mm. still going to have to get a nomination through the Senate, where, again, even if he gets a 50-50 Senate, that can put some conservative Democrats like Joe Manchin of West Virginia, make them the important swing votes. This is a very different picture than what the polling wrongly suggested before the election that the Democrats were going to easily control the Senate. And I wonder if some of these cabinet posts have been kind of jiggled around since then. It is a very different picture. Look, people like Joe Manchin, as you just mentioned, the senator from West Virginia is in the catbird seat. Josh Gottheimer from uh, New Jersey, Democrat in the House, member of the House. He's another one who is in that in that really pivotal position. And now what we're seeing are these moderates who, you know, in the last couple of Congresses haven't really had a strong a case to make. They're really the ones who are going to be the difference makers, I think, in the next round of decision making in, in, in the House and Senate. So that does it does matter a lot. I would I would tell you, I think that um, the Democrats may in some ways be in a better position. Here's why. Because it's obvious that there is a conservative or, or an anti-establishment uh, cohort out in the country. There's a desire to see things shaken up. And so um, if Democrats had won the Senate in a major way and, and increased their numbers in the House, there could have been a false sense of um, of a power, a false sense of support that existed in the country, which could, you know, sometimes encourage people to go too far, at which point you have that swing back in the midterms. What this may do is give Joe Biden the ability 
to really bring together a coalition that can govern. And some of these decisions won't be decisions that will go too far to the left, but they may last much longer. You think about something like net neutrality that the, that the Obama White House pushed through the FCC a few years ago. As soon as Trump won the White House, he just eliminated that regulation and went back to the old way of doing business. You know, getting a, a, a law passed with support from some number of Republicans will invest them in keeping that law in the books, even if Joe Biden is not president. True. And looking back at the Trump administration, much of what he did was by executive order, not because the Democrats controlled the House, not legislation. So a lot of it is easily reversed, no matter what the legislature looks like. That's true. And, you know, the, the big question of the Biden uh, administration is, can he get back to some level of what they call regular order in the, in the House? Can he get back to some amount of just doing business the way people do business? The House passes a bill. The Senate passes another bill. They go to a conference committee. They wrestle through both of those bills. The president, you know, signs whatever comes out of that. If they could get back to that way of doing business, the country will be better off. I'm not convinced that's true because there there is a cohort in the particularly in the Republican Party that's just again started with the Tea Party and continued with the Trump uh, the sort of Trumpists the make America they call them the MAGA group MAGA crowd um, they just seem to be against anything that has a Democratic label on it and if that's the case if Mitch McConnell can't let go of that caucus enough or, or get enough votes to to allow some things to get through that that matter. It just means we're going to keep hurtling back and forth between one presidency to another and which regulation they can do by executive order. Jamal, I'd like to talk with you briefly about the differing views that President Trump and President-elect Biden have about the COVID virus. And let's take a quick break and then let's come back and do that. Let's do it. CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons will be back with me in just a moment. This is America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Well, with the new administration coming in, we need to talk about the changes in what is the biggest story outside of the debate over who won the presidency that mm-hmm. seems to rage on, which is COVID. We're talking with CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons. Jamal, there are so many things Donald Trump and Joe Biden disagree on. We could spend a couple hours just talking about different styles and ideas on practically everything. But the immediate matter at hand is COVID, is it not? 
It is. We've got what about 15 million, 15.2 million cases in the U.S. and over 285,000 deaths um, already this year. Um, that's just such a huge number. You think at the height of the Vietnam War, I think we were losing about 15,000 people a year. Um, you know, this is so 286,000 in one year. It's just a huge, huge number. I think someone I saw last week is the largest um, the cause of death in the United States this year is going to be COVID. Um, so, so solving this problem for people that those are the deaths. There are businesses that are being impacted. There are families that are being impacted. Kids who haven't been able to go to school. Marriages that are breaking up. I mean, this is having a very tough uh, impact on the entire American uh, economy and culture and society. Joe Biden said the other day in trying to get people to wear a mask for 100 days, whatever your politics or point of view, mask up for 100 days. Once we take office, it'll make a difference. It's not a political statement. It's a patriotic act. The problem is that we have people in this country whose strong beliefs about whether to wear a mask, whether to distance themselves, whether to go to large parties or concerts or whatever, is less about health than about their politics. That's true. Um, There are people who are uh, who really are dug in on this idea that masks are not to be worn, um, you know, because the government said so or because they don't matter or whatever reason they have. Um, It has gotten to be very political. And it's something, though, that it just makes sense. You know, if if uh, someone, you know, someone used this analogy, it's a little rough, but it's it's true. Uh, You know, if I'm wearing a mask and you're wearing a mask and you spit out your mouth, the odds are I'm not going to get spit on me, <laughs> right? Because, you know, you were uh, wearing a mask and I was wearing a mask. So let's just all keep our, you know, keep our masks on and protect each other and ourselves. And it's not just for us, but it's also for the people in our lives who are a little more vulnerable, our parents, grandparents, or, or family members and friends who are more vulnerable. The, the two men also differ in how they message. One of the things President Trump has shown us, and I think it's something everybody should pay attention to, something... I think the Obama administration didn't do very well in the beginning, is the bully pulpit of the White House is a force multiplier. When the president stands up and says something every day, people tend to start to believe it or think about it or take it more seriously. Having the person behind that seal say it every day makes people pay attention to it. So there is a possibility that maybe not the most rabid MAGA followers of the president, but some of the folks who are just kind of on the edge and they're going about their day-to-day life and they're not wearing a mask because other people in the neighborhood aren't wearing masks. Maybe some of those people might put one on. You know, the kids are the ones, you know, you think about things like the environment. You know, one of the reasons, you know, when I was a kid, uh, they had this thing, give a hoop, don't pollute, right? Uh, never be a dirty bird. You're supposed to pick up the trash. And, you know, the kid, <laughs> remember that? Um, the kids are the ones who kind of lead the effort in some of these ways. And so as kids realize maybe we should wear a mask, they might put that pressure on their parents. That's an interesting idea. I actually know a lot of parents who stopped smoking because their kids started making fun of them. So there, there is possibly <laughs> right. that. One of the things that we're dealing with here also is the economy. President Trump believed hard shutdowns early on would cripple the economy, though Taiwan did that. They're now fully open, haven't had a domestic case since late April, and only had seven deaths, which if you extrapolate to the American population, would be 94 total. Uh, so he had that... President-elect uh, Biden is of the opinion, look, if we really clamp down and and get a handle on this thing, we can open up the economy again. But the economy is inextricably linked at this point to how we deal with the virus. The economy uh, is certainly linked to it. The, the, the reality is we can't get businesses open and have people sitting in restaurants and in movie theaters 
until we get this virus under control, because who wants to really do that? I mean, let's, except for the people who are deniers um, and they're willing to risk their lives to go prove a point. Um, you know, I don't want to go to a, um, a dank gym with filled, you know, person to person on every, you know, on every machine sweating and breathing hard. Uh, you know, so let's, let's figure out how do we get that? How do we get that solved? Um, and if we can do that, it'll all work out. I mean, you look at schools in particular, uh, I think what we've all learned is how much it's not just important for kids to go to school so they can learn and, and, and grow, which is great. But if kids don't go to school, parents can't go to work. <laughs> um, and the whole economy is built upon having people who are uh, healthy, taking care of our kids and allowing them to be able to, uh, our kids to be able to, you know, grow and go, go to school and learn. So we've, we we got to figure this out. The good news is it looks like vaccines are on the horizon. It might take us till, you know, July 4th, for, you know, to reach some level of having everybody uh, vaccinated. They say May, but so far they've been missing a lot of dates. So I'm going to push it till July 4th. That's when I'm scheduling my big trips uh, next year. All right. Well, we hope you can book that. Uh, CBS News political contributor, Jamal Simmons. Jamal, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It was great. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. There has been a lot of talk the last few months about the future of movies. Films themselves seem to be more popular than ever, just not at theaters. Now, that may change, of course, after a vaccine puts a dent into the virus. But already some owners of theaters are talking about converting the buildings into other things in the belief that some people will come back, but the days of the multiplex with 14 theaters are dead and gone. But are they? Anne Hornaday is film critic for The Washington Post. Anne, good to talk to you. Same to you, Gil. Thank you. A few days ago, when Warner Brothers announced they'd be opening films like Wonder Woman 1984 on HBO Max the same day as it opens in theaters, some people think that's the sound of the last nail going into the movie theater coffin. What do you think? I I understand that sentiment. Um, It's been simmering for several years now. Streaming and viewer habits have been making everybody nervous. But I am still bullish on movie theaters, maybe not necessarily in the exact form that that we've become used to. Um, I do think that the super hyper leveraged multiplex circuits, you know, the big boys that have a lot of debt, um, I can see after having poured so much money into updating their auditoriums to lure us all back into the theater, um, I think there will probably be, you know, a, a pretty dramatic downsizing in that space. I think that the theaters that stand best to survive this and come out whole are really the the independents, you know, the the art houses, the community-based theaters, um, even art house chains like a Landmark or an Angelica, places where they really know their audience and they program accordingly. It's a little bit more customized or feels that way. when you go to these theaters, you feel like they know you. You feel like you're you're kind of catered to and taken care of. And within this last you know ten or twelve months, they have been able to go out you know reach out to their customers because they often have lists and they know how to reach them, and bring them in vir- via virtual programming. And they've kept them engaged. So I do think there's pent up demand. I think people are going to be so eager when this is all over to to be able to go out again. And movies are still a relatively affordable way to do that. And there will always be those movies that you just have to see in a theater. And I don't even mean 
necessarily the big blockbusters, but I remember just a few years ago, one of my most sort of deliriously fun times in a movie was seeing Girls Trip here in Baltimore, just at a plain old theater with a bunch of people laughing and having a good time together. So I still think that um, those are the kinds of experiences people crave and that the movies still, can still give us and that we that we want to be in theaters to have. You know, when I was a kid, I went to see, not new, but uh, a couple of Marx Brothers movies that were playing at a revival theater or what we now call TCM. And it was a very different experience being in a theater with hundreds of people laughing together. And this, of course, is the way the movie was originally meant to be watched. And it was great and it was fun, but it wasn't enough to save revival theaters. So I guess the question is, why will this be any different? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it will depend on young people, frankly. I mean, they're the ones, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like we as old fogies are kind of adopting the habits of young people who are so used to streaming everything and getting it when they want it. But even young people like to go to movies. You know, the young, the young people are keeping the horror genre relevant and alive. And that's something you definitely want to see in a theater with your friends and, and, and jump back at the same time and then laugh nervously at the same time. I mean, that's, that's part of the fun. So, but you're right. I mean, I, I like, look, I don't know anything more than anybody else. I think everybody's go going into this with just a lot of anxiety and uncertainty, but I just cannot see a world without movie theaters as a place for people to just frankly get out of the house, both in terms of teenagers who want to get away from their parents or parents who want to get away for a nice night out, you know, maybe go grab dinner and see a movie like the old days. Part of the problem here is just an economic problem. No matter what, you know, we want, see, it would really be nice to see it. It's nice to see a scary movie in the dark. That's that's the place to see it. That's going to be fun. But part of the problem that we're facing now is these theater companies, you know, uh, AMC, Regal, have a crushing load of debt. And even if people come back to the box office, the box office prices and concession prices necessary for these companies to keep going may just not make any sense for investors in the future. I mean, this may turn out to be more structural than whatever people's tastes happen to be. That is an excellent point. You know, you're, that's, that's absolutely an excellent point. And I also think there's another sort of calculation that, that, that maybe some people aren't taking into consideration, which is that for, forever, the, the way that movies have been valued um, and the, the contracts that are written and things like that, they're all based on a theatrical release because that generates so much interest and it generates so much awareness. That's when I write my reviews. And so those reviews then live on throughout that movie's life when it goes to VOD, when it goes to streaming, when it goes to cable, when it goes, you know, but it, it kind of, that theatrical moment is the thing that unleashes a lot of value in a movie. So, Again, this is a little bit down in the weeds in terms of the way the business works, but if that goes away, then they have to kind of refigure all of that. And then if you just send your movie to a streamer, that's that's convenient because it, you got to pay out. You don't have to worry about all the advertising and promotion that usually goes with a with a theatrical release. But that just joins. Then you're then you're part of the fire hose. And then how do you how do you generate um, attention? How do you separate yourself? And then so it, it kind of it's going to demand a whole rethinking of the, of the business model. Um, and I guess for me as a critic, I know that I'd like to think that that's where reviews come in handy. You know, we can help people find great things or avoid things they might not want to spend their time with, but I still think theatrical is, um, it has a, it has a place in that ecology in that ecosystem. You know, you hope that it does, but also talked about the corporate end from the 
idea of movie theaters, but from movie companies, more cheaper streaming fodder may also make more sense for companies like uh, you know, Paramount and MGM and Lionsgate that probably can't take a chance anymore on the $300 million film that could just sink them forever. It's like, well, you know, they, they look at something like, you know, The Queen's Gambit or The Crown and they go, and it's not that those things were cheap to make either, but they may be looking at them and saying, hey, why are we spending $300 million to make one film that could sink a smaller company when we can make a whole bunch of $40 million films? Right, which ironically is what a lot of us have been calling for all along. I mean, you know, part of the one of the downsides of this blockbuster tentpole business model that they've been so attached to is that it's, it's created such a monoculture, you know, where they only have been making that kind of film. And then and they have forgotten that kind of, we call it the middle class, right? Because you'll always get the scrappy little indies. You know, somebody will always be able to scrape a nickel together and make a, a scrappy, interesting, in, you know, ingenious movie. Um, but I think speaking as somebody who kind of came of age during the 70s, that's my golden age where I look back and those were lean, well-made. You know, those were the godfathers. Those were the Chinatowns, the, all the president's men of the world, you know. And I think that's the kind of movie a lot of us have been worried about um, going away. But to your point, that now that's making a heck of a lot more sense. The only difference is we may not be going to the theater to see them. Or maybe there will be some kind of hybrid where those art houses and independents that I was talking about find a way to, you know, maybe there's just a way to husband all of these different venues in a way that makes sense. I don't know. I continue to try to be an optimist, but there's just, there's so many moving parts. There are, and so much will depend on how innovative theater companies can be. I've been to theaters over the last couple of years where they serve dinner and you can actually take it to your seat. And, you know, there there's some companies that are, are trying to figure out, well, what is it? Is it going to be more like the dinner theater experience? What's the experience going to be like that's going to have people come for a night out? And I'm sure there's a lot of people at uh, both the movie companies and the theater companies that are working hard trying to figure that one out, as well as Anne Hornaday, film critic for The Washington Post. And thank you so much, as always, for being with us. Thank you, Gil. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Friendster, MySpace, and more all left in the dust by Facebook, which is now also controlling Instagram and WhatsApp. Now, should the government break it up? The FTC and more than 40 states say yes, because it has used unfair tactics against rivals to kill competition. CBS News correspondent Lana Zak talked to CBS News technology reporter Dan Patterson. What Illegal tactics does the lawsuit allege that Facebook used in order to dominate the social media market. 
generally when we look at uh, lawsuits like this, they're big and nuanced and expansive. And this one is, too, but it's also pretty easy to summarize. Uh, look, the suit alleges that Facebook used their scale to buy competition and to crush competition. Uh, additionally, it says that they used uh, user data to get a sense of competition of competitive companies as they were emerging and to figure out whether they should purchase the company or destroy the company, or at least attempt to destroy the company. Uh, and it found that uh, it would use those tactics um, or that those tactics were informed by user data in ways that might have been uh, not legal. Hmm. Well, the lawsuit alleges that Facebook's tactics weakened privacy protections for its users. That seems to go along with what you're saying there. Uh, explain a little bit more to us about this idea. Oftentimes, the Facebook app, or almost any app, can get a sense of uh, what else is happening on your mobile phone. You can create these large data snapshots of what your users are doing beyond just the activity that you might think of in your user account, like logging in, posting a photo, making a status update, that's pretty expected. But uh, when Facebook starts to see, hey, look, traffic is flooding out of our app into a competitor's app, it gives them an unfair advantage. And the lawsuit is saying that uh, maybe not necessarily in just a mobile, the instance of a mobile app, but that they're using data in a very similar way to get a sense of competition in ways that you or I might not consent to uh, when we think about how our data is being used. Well, Dan, when we're talking about competition, there are even times when uh, I think people forget that some of the big behemoths within Facebook are actually part of that parent company. This lawsuit is also targeting Facebook's acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp. What could happen to these platforms? Yeah, that's kind of the core uh, when we talk about acquiring other companies. Really what the lawsuit is talking about is Facebook's acquisition of uh, Instagram for a billion dollars in 2012 and uh, just a few years later of WhatsApp for $19 billion, which was at the time uh, the largest tech transaction of all time. Uh, and these uh, applications, the lawsuit alleges, give Facebook an unfair competitive advantage in the social marketplace. So they could be broken off as independent apps. Now, we also know that Facebook has kind of on the back end been working with the technology to thwart this and to integrate the messaging technology, which might make it uh, incredibly difficult to separate uh, WhatsApp, Instagram, and what they call the big blue app, Facebook itself. CBS News correspondent Lana Zak and tech reporter Dan Patterson. You've been listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.